Well, happy Easter, Hope. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you're here. I want to continue to extend the welcome to you, whether you're here worshiping with us here in West Des Moines or whether you're worshiping with us online. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here to celebrate the greatest victory that the world has ever known. And we're going to do something. We're going to start it off. It's a call and response that we don't do because we have to do it. We don't do it because to fulfill some sort of Easter worship, you have to do this, he is risen, and then he is risen indeed. That's not why we do it. Why we're going to do it is because this, it's more than just a call and response. It's, it's a proclamation. It's a statement. It's a statement of incredible truth. It's a statement of truth that is the greatest truth that you could ever know. And of all the things, of all the things in all of your life that you've ever been searching for, the greatest discoveries, of the, of the greatest meaning, of the greatest identity, none of them, with all due respect to all of those other things. None of them. None of them can, can hold a candle, can measure up in any way, shape, or form to this truth of the victory that Jesus Christ has, has won over sin and death and, and evil. So from the very beginning... From that first, that first Easter morning, people who witnessed and experienced the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ would have this greeting with one another. A person would say, he is risen, and then the person would call in response and say, he is risen indeed. And so we're going to do that. And I want you to lean into it. And, and if you're worried, you say, ah, Jeremy, I, I just don't get into those kind of things. You kind of feel a little uncertain or nervous or wonder what people are going to think. Well, everybody else is going to be doing it. So if you don't want to look foolish, you might as well just do it and lean into it. So I'm going to say he is risen, and you're going to respond with? He is risen okay, now you've practiced. So now we're ready to go. Ready? He is risen! He is risen! It will change everything. Changed everything. Changed everything on the day in which it happened, but it changes everything for you Today, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians that, that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if it did not happen, if it was somehow made up, if there was some untruth to it, if it, if it was something that was some sort of a, a myth or a legend or folklore, if it was something that is anything other than truth, the Bible says that those who believe it are the most to be pitied. That what we're doing and, and what, we're, we're, what we're celebrating, it's useless. It's pitiful. It has no, no, no power. It has no relevance at all. But if, but if it's important and if it's true, then it's the most important thing. Maybe you say, but that's, that's, that's the difficulty I have. I'm, I mean, I can hear the story of Jesus, and I can hear all of the things about Jesus, and, and, and I can even get to the point where I can, I can admit and identify that there was a, a person by the name of Jesus who lived in, in the first century, and I, and I can believe all of that. I can follow the story up to there. I can even, I can even reconcile the fact that he, he taught like nobody else has ever taught before, and, Formed miracles. 
But the thing that, that hangs me up is the resurrection. Because if that were to happen, it would seem like it's just too big of a leap. It would seem impossible. But it did. And it was the greatest comeback that the world has ever known. At a time when those who had followed Jesus, the people who had, had seen him in the flesh, when all of those people had gotten to a place where they had lost all hope. Ever been there? Ever been in a place in your own life where you wonder where the hope has gone? Hope can be a dangerous thing, can it? Trust and belief can be very vulnerable things to have. You see, when hope is lost, despair sets in. I think we all have been in or maybe we're facing a situation right now, today, facing a situation where we wonder if to have hope would to be foolish and to be careless. When I was growing up, my family, we were an incredible sports fan. We followed sports. We followed Minnesota sports. We, we were typically uh, focused in on the Major League Baseball season. So for me, this time of the year is a, is a wonderful year. My team, the Twins, won again today, so we're 2-1. and one. It's a good thing, and I'm super proud of them. But I grew up listening to Twins games, watching Twins games. The voice of the twins when I was growing up on the radio was a guy, the radio announcer was a guy by the name of Herb Carneal. Those of you who are twins fans, that name would be familiar to you. But there was thing, something that took place in my family with, with my, my brother and my dad and I. We were, well, when it came to our sports teams, we were pessimists. We lost hope really fast. And so if it ever got to the late innings of a game and our team was behind, we We'd want to turn the radio off or we'd want to turn the TV off. It would be like the, the most tense time of the game. We'd say, oh, turn it off. It's not going to happen. But my mom, she's the optimist. She's the one who always had hope. And so when we were wanting to turn it off, even when our team was getting killed, we'd want to turn it off and she'd be like, oh, but guys, there's still hope. And we'd look at her and we'd say, dear woman, sometimes you need to know when to give up. You need to know that a comeback just isn't possible. You need to know when to give up hope. She said, no, but I think they can do it. We said, but they never do. So why would it change this time? Feel familiar? I mean, we can do that with the teams that we follow or the, the pursuits that we have, but, but those are metaphors for the greater things, the deeper things, the heavier things in our life. Say, I'm not going to go through this again. I'm not going to put myself out there that way again. Because to do so, it's dangerous. It seems careless. We'd rather just maybe throw in the towel or to call it quits. 
Or maybe we say that that's just being real. Remember when uh, the first time I, I saw my wife Bridget, I was uh, in my second year of teaching, she was in her first year of teaching. And I can honestly tell you the very first time, I will never forget it, the very first time I saw her. Now, she doesn't remember the first time she saw me because she's unforgettable and I'm very forgettable. But I remember when she walked through the commons, we were both teachers at the same high school. And at the time, I was hopelessly single. And so that day after I, I met her and I talked to her for the first time, I can remember the things that we talked about. I was stumbling all over myself and she was talking quite comfortably. And that day I got home and I called my mom and my dad, which is clue one why I was hopelessly single. <laughs> Strike one for Jeremy Johnson. And I called my, my mom and my dad and I said, I met the kind of girl that I'm going to marry. And the optimist, my mom's like, we'll ask her out. She'd never go for a guy like me. The timing wasn't right, and so for, for seven years, for seven years we kept in contact. And I can honestly tell you, one, that I'm horrible at wooing a person. I'm like a dog. I come up and I'm like, <laughs> and I couldn't, there's not a cool bone in my body. I, there just isn't. Hate to ruin it for you, but I'm just not cool. And so every time I talked to Bridget over those seven years, we'd get on the phone and couldn't go like three sentences without me going, do you want to go out? And she just, no. You know, I, well, it was seven years after we met. I had a friend, his name was Nate, and he had tickets to a Jack Johnson concert in Somerset, Wisconsin. He's a huge Jack Johnson fan. And Nate had gotten six tickets. And Nate and his wife were going to go to the, the concert and his brother Jared and his wife were going to go to the concert. And Nate called me and he's like, do you think you could find somebody? I'll try. So I called Bridget. I still remember what her number was. 701-230-1230. I can never forget it. I called her and I said, hey, I got an extra ticket. June 22nd, Somerset, Wisconsin, to see Jack Johnson. Do you want to go? And I expected her to say, ah, I'm busy, I have plans. She said, no, yeah, I'd love to go. And I thought, oh, finally, it's going to happen. And 15 seconds later, she said, Jeremy, you need to know that this is just as friends. Oh. Six weeks later, we were engaged. I didn't give her a chance to think about it because I didn't want to go through it. You don't have to clap for that. That's called a pity clap. Thank you for taking pity on me. My in-laws are here. They took pity on their daughter for saying yes to me. But it was amazing. Because to be honest, I almost didn't ask. Because I didn't know if I could have hope. 1972, there was a track athlete by the name of Dave Waddle. Dave Waddle, uh, in his early years of running, was relatively unknown. Kind of burst onto the scene going up to the, the 72 Olympics in, in Munich. Going into the trials, Dave, Munich had, or Dave Waddle, in, for the trials for Munich, had uh, one of the best times. He came out of nowhere, had one of the best times going into the Olympic Games. There's incredible hope for him. Now, for those of you who are track and field athletes, for those of you who are old enough to remember the 72 Olympics, I'm not. 
you know that what happened in the 72 Olympics is, is known as the greatest comeback in track and field history. The greatest performance by an American track athlete in the history of the games. But it wasn't supposed to happen. Waddle ran the 800, and the 800 is known as the most grueling race in all of sports. Races that are shorter than the 800, you just, you go and you open up the throttle and you go as hard as you can go, and you don't even have time to think about the pain you're experiencing. The race is over. Anything over the 800 is a real patient race where you spend the whole race just kind of conserving as much energy as you can to, to get to the final leg, and then at that point, then, then you open it up. But it's as patient as you can be. I'm a marathon runner. I love the marathon, and it's not the most grueling race. It's, it's, it's miserable at times, but just at the end. The 800 is too short to be patient, but long enough that you need to go all out the whole thing. And I often think about the 800 as a race that there's no room for air. And no room for air, A-I-R. And if you do any slip up at all, if you don't get out of the blo blocks in the right time, your race is shot. It's a precision race. Three weeks prior to the games, Dave Waddle uh, gets tendonitis in his knees so bad that he, he has to literally quit training can hardly put one foot in front of the other. And everybody thinks that there is no chance, no possibility that this skinny runner from the United States who wore a golf cap while he ran had any chance. The gun sounded and the race began. And the commentators start to remark about something must be wrong. One lap around, it's a two-lap race, one lap around. Dave Waddle is in a place where he'll admit later that the only thing he's hoping for is to just not embarrass himself. The hope that victory could ever happen is impossible. But get ready. Stand by for the kick. Take a look. In lane three, Dave Waddle with the golf cap from the United States. He started wearing that golf cap because he had real long hair that used to come down in his eyes, and then he kept it as a superstition. Two laps around. They run in lanes for the first 100 meters, and then they'll break. Boyd is looking strong again at the moment already. On the inside, we have Arshanov. Arshanov in the lead as they break, but Boyd on the outside is going for the lead right now. Uko, the other Kenyan, on the inside, and Waddle is way back exactly where he was in the semifinals. We don't know right now whether he's just trying to stay out of trouble. It'll be a few more hundred yards before we know if Dave is seriously injured or really just lagging back to stay out of trouble. He's not too bad because it was quite a fast pace through that first 200 meters. And as we said, here go the Kenyans charging for the lead, coming up to the bell lap, Boyd and Uku. Okay, and right with him is Andy Carter of Great Britain, Dieter Fromm of East Germany. Those are the four right now. And they're on the bell lap. The split is 52.3. If Dave could just pull up here and get on the outside of Arzanov, he would have him boxed in perfectly. Let's hope Dave makes a move down this back stretch. The Kenyans running like a mirror reflection of each other. 
first and second. Brown there he right goes. There with him. There's Arzana from the Soviet Union going up to the lead now. There goes Arzana, the favorite, taking the lead. Dave Waddle is making his bid. He's not in too bad position right now. I think Dave's in great position on this at this point. He's in perfect position on the outside. Good striking distance for this last 100, 200 meters. Stand by for the kick. Stand by for the kick of Dave Waddle. If he's got it, he could make it. But he's got to catch Arjan and Blanquinha. And here he comes. This is the bid for a gold medal of Dave Waddle. He's got one Kenya. I think he's going to make it. I think he did it. Dave Waddle won the gold medal. The man who came out of nowhere in the U.S. Olympic trials. The man who then got married. And some people said he should have gotten married. It was going to ruin him. He came up with two bad knees. He couldn't train for weeks. And he has come in and won the gold medal, the first tremendously exciting moment in track for the United States in these Olympic Games. And Dave was the calmest of all. Until the very last moments of that race, nobody would ever have been able to imagine that victory would have been possible. And as glorious and as incredible and as well-known as that victory was, holds nothing in comparison to what those first women to the tomb experienced that Sunday morning. It's the Easter Gospel, Matthew's account. Matthew's very intentional the way in which he begins this account of the resurrection of Jesus. He says it's early Sunday morning. You see, Jesus had been put to death on, on Friday. And because uh, Jesus was a Jew and the people who were following him followed the laws of Judaism, it, they had to fall into their Sabbath rest. And so from Friday until the dawn would break on Sunday morning, they, they couldn't go to the tomb. So as the first light starts to break that Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and, and another woman named Mary start to go to the tomb, but... They went there to anoint a body that was dead. I mean, they had no reason. They had no reason to think or to imagine that anything other than that would happen. I mean, they brought with them spices and fragrances that were used by the custom to anoint dead bodies. But Matthew says, as the new day was dawning, See, even in a place where they were expecting to encounter death, life was already happening. Even in a place where, where, where life was, was absolutely impossible, life was already taking place. Maybe you need to hear that right now. Maybe that's what you need to know right now, that even though what you're experiencing seems like a dead end, what you're experiencing seems like a roadblock, what you're experiencing seems like all the lights have gone out for you. It's a new day. Dawn is breaking for you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ brings to life wherever you need to find life. Where is it for you? Where do you need to find that life? Where have you been going to find that life? Man, we spend so much time trying to find it in so many different things, don't we? Find it in our relationships, which are good. 
which are wonderful, but they can't be God for us. We try to find it in our, in our careers, which, which are wonderful. And God has gifted you and, and equipped you to do what he's called you to do. But they can't be God for you. In the money that you have, the wealth, the security that you may be experiencing, which is a good thing, but it can't be God for you. There's only one place to find it. In the peaks and in the valleys. Dawn is breaking. New life is coming. The Mary and Mary, they are walking to the tomb expecting to find death and an angel appears. He says, I know you're looking for Jesus, but he's not here. At the beginning, I wonder if they're actually offended. How dare you? Isn't our humiliation, I mean, we actually believed in what he had said. We actually took him at his word when he told us that he was going to die and be raised to life. We held on to hope until the very last moment. But we saw him die. We saw him take his last breath. How dare you? The angel says he's risen. He's risen just as he said that he would. And it changed everything. Changed everything for Mary and Mary. It changed everything for the disciples. As the women go out and they spread the word, it changed everything for the 500 people that saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. It changed their life because what he said would happen actually happened. And he overcame death. He conquered it. He put death to death. She might say, that's good, that's great. And it's a wonderful story. But where's the proof? I mean, you can say it's a great thing, and you can say that it changed everything, but I need to know because my doubts are way too great. I'm glad that you're here. Your doubts and your questions, they're welcome here. You're in a good place for that. Maybe you think that, 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 that doubt and, and faith can't exist with one another. I'll argue with you on that. Faith by nature, it elicits doubt. Hebrews 11, verse 1, it says, Faith is the assurance of things that we hope for, and it's the conviction of things that we just can't see. That faith isn't the opposite of doubt. Faith is the opposite of apathy. Ask your questions. Our page two worship on Tuesday evenings. This week we're going to specifically dive deep into the resurrection, into the accounts of it, into to the historical facts of it. And I encourage you that if doubt is a thing that you're struggling with, to keep coming back, keep asking. That the people that you see around you, that you would say have the greatest faith, I would tend to say to you, that that comes as a byproduct of their greatest doubts. 
Because the evidence is overwhelming. No matter how big the question is. There's a man by the name of Lee Strobel. He wrote a book called Case for Christ. It's one of the best-selling books over the last two decades. And Lee Strobel was somebody who who wore his doubt as, as a badge of honor. He was an atheist. He had no belief whatsoever. In fact, he took pride in in trying to to argue anybody of faith out of it. He and his wife Leslie, they they both had had this in common when they got married. But they had an experience one time. They're out to eat and their, their young daughter started to choke. She started to choke on a piece of candy and as they're crying for help, as their daughter is struggling to breathe, there, there's a woman who comes along by the name of Alfie. And she's a nurse, and she helps to dislodge the candy from their daughter's throat. And because of that experience, Lee Strobel's wife, Leslie, and Alfie start to form a relationship, and, and Alfie starts to share her faith. And then she starts going to church. And she starts asking the questions. And she has this incredible awakening in her faith. And one night as she comes home from worship that she hadn't told Lee that she was doing, she shares with him that the switch had turned on for her. She tells him that she's accepted Jesus into her heart. And Lee Strobel is irate. He's furious. And he takes it upon himself. And he's a journalist. It's 1980. He's a journalist at the Chicago Tribune. And he takes it upon himself that his quest, his biggest story now is he's going to prove his wife wrong. Now a quick pause. That's not good advice for those of you in marriages. I don't advise that. But it's the tactic that Lee Strobel did. And he decided that he was going to go and he was going to ask all the experts to prove her wrong. Take a look. I feel like I can get through to her before she gets too deep. But I remember you went through something like this with your daughter, with Lori, right? Yes, yes, I did. It's a conundrum. You see, in times of crisis, we humans tend to seek meaning, don't we? You've read Bertrand Russell, of course? Yeah, of course. I mean, not since college, but... There's no way that Leslie would read that right now. Yeah, my daughter wouldn't either. But I kept picking away at the delusion until she finally came around. But I got to tell you, Lee, it doesn't come without a price. How do you mean? Whatever this is for Leslie, maybe it's not such a terrible thing. I mean, if it brings her comfort, are you sure it's not something you can live with? Yes, I'm sure. I'm not gonna lose my wife and my kids to something that I can't even reason with. No, I can't even pretend to go along with this, right? I mean, you of all people should understand that. I do, and I know that Leslie is a reasonable woman, so I think that reason is probably the best approach. And as always, it comes down to facts and truth. Now, you present her with the facts, and I'm sure she will find her way back to the truth. Meanwhile, my collection is at your disposal. 
Take your time. Appreciate it, Ray. Oh, Lee, one more thing. I'll be praying for you. Well, that's not even funny. <laughs> Kane, let me ask you something. Uh, you're into all this God nonsense. Wow, you sure know how to term a source. <laughs> a bunch of Bible thumpers got to Leslie. Um, I'm afraid she joined your cult. So if somebody, somebody wanted to do an investigation into Christianity. Oh, like a hit piece. Ooh, well, uh, you know, if that's where the evidence leads. <laughs> Seems to me you got yourself a catch-22. What's that? Well, let's say you debunk Christianity. How's Leslie gonna live with the man who destroyed the very thing that now gives her life meaning? No, well, I, because I should be the thing. And then what if Leslie's right? And you prove your theory of science and reason wrong. How are you gonna live with yourself? I'm willing to take that chance. Okay. You're a journalist. Check it out. So that's precisely what he does. Over the next two years, he transforms a room in the, the Chicago Tribune building. He transforms a room into his, his research room. And he, he covers the walls with bulletin boards. And, and on the bulletin boards, he, he puts up the biggest questions that he has. The biggest gaps that he feels exist between truth and, and fiction. And he crisscrosses the country and he, he crisscrosses the globe in pursuit to answer these great questions. To answer the, the question of is, is, if, if the Bible testifies about Jesus, is it even reliable? How do we know that, that scripture is something that can be trusted? So he talks to textual critics and, and people who study historical documents. And he talks to, to medical examiners to ask the question, did he really die? If the linchpin of Christianity is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he needs to know, was he really dead or was that some sort of made-up story? Was he just asleep? Would, did he fake it? Did he feign it? Did he do something to, to fool everybody around him? He talks to, to psychologists to, to wonder if 500 people say that they saw him after he died, is there some way that they just hallucinated? All of the questions. And he researches it and he looks at them and he finds the answers. And one by one the dominoes begin to fall. And he gets to a place where he realizes two things. Belief or unbelief, both of them take faith. Both of them rely on us putting our faith in what we believe. So where is there more evidence? This isn't somebody who wrote a book to try to persuade other Christians what he as a Christian believed. This is somebody who wanted to prove it wrong and he gets to the point where he can't not believe any longer. The evidence was overwhelming. But then the greater question comes across his mind. It's not who is Jesus, it's why. Why would he do such a thing? Because it just doesn't seem to make sense, does it? If you were to put this whole story together, why would you, why would you do it this way? Huh. The answer, for Lee Strobel, but for you and for me is, it's the most important question 
and the most important answer that you'll ever find. Take a look. The only way to truth is through facts. The entire Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. If it didn't happen, it's a house of cards. You just have to show that Jesus died and was seen after. How can we be sure of the reliability of those manuscripts? Archaeologists have recovered 5,843 Greek New Testament manuscripts. Nothing else in history even comes close. Do you trust the Journal of the American Medical Association? Yes, Jesus Christ died on that cross. You're not telling me what I hope to hear today. It is true. Wouldn't you want to know that? The first recorded account tells us that he was buried in a tomb. The empty tomb is based on evidence. Isn't evidence your trade? Faith is the evidence of things we can't actually see. Any careful historian will see that the core account is consistent even if a, a few of the secondary details are told from different perspectives. 500 separate people saw Jesus at the same time. That would be an even bigger miracle than the resurrection itself. The disciples reported what happened. People with zero motivation to lie. When is enough evidence enough evidence? I felt something that is maybe more real than anything I've ever felt in my life. This is not a condition anyone still takes a leap of faith. But why would he do it? It's really very simple. Love. I don't want you to miss that. So why would he do it? What would be the reason? What would ever persuade him? It's love. Maybe it's not the doubt for you. Maybe it's because you feel that for whatever reason right now, because of who you are, or because of what you've done, or because of what's going on in your life. That God doesn't love you, or God couldn't love you. Oh, I have good news for you. You don't have a God who is angry. You don't have a God who, who longs to, to, to punish you or to keep a record of all of the things that you have done wrong. No. You have a God who loves you, a God who loves you so much. For God so loved the world, we, we read in John's Gospel. For God so loved the world. He so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whoever, that anyone, Regardless of where you've been, what you've done, what you've said, what you've left unsaid. 
regardless of the circumstances of your life, regardless of the depths of your doubt, or the shame and the guilt that you feel, God loves you. And there's nothing you can do to prevent that. And no matter where you go, no matter what you'll do, God will continue to love you. His love will pursue you all the days of your life, the Bible tells us. Because God showed his love. Paul writes in the book of Romans, by sending his son to die while we were still sinners. All of us, all of us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. All of us fall short in sometimes, in some ways, at all times, in all ways. But God's love never falls short. His love always makes up the gap. His love was so desperate for you that he entered into the world to die for you, to set you free, to give you freedom here and to give you the assurance of eternity. It's a new day for you. God's love is for you right here, right now. Stand by for the kick. It's the greatest comeback that you can ever receive. Receive his love right here today. Open your heart. Jesus promised his disciples right before he, before he goes to the cross. Because because I live, he says, you will live too. You will experience life today. It was just Thursday morning, just a couple days ago. I was sitting with a, a young woman from our, from our church. I met her the first time, not because she was a member of our church, but because my brother and his wife, about six years ago, seven years ago, moved to the Des Moines area. And my sister-in-law, she got involved in a Bible study here at church, and, and this woman was her first friend. So I loved her because she loved my family. And two years ago, she has an incredible husband, three incredible kids. She found out that she has a cancer that's very advanced. So just two days ago, we were talking, and I asked her, I said, how do you do this? How are you walking through this? Because she's walking in faith and in life. It's not that she's rejoicing that this is going on, but man, you can just see life in her. I said, how are you doing it? So my husband and I were just talking about that this week. She said, without Jesus, it's impossible. But because of Jesus, we know that no matter what, this is not the end of the story. Whatever it is for you, it's not the end of the story because God's the end of your story and he promises you eternity. Paul says in Romans chapter six that if you are united with Jesus Christ by faith, by belief, by trust, you are joined in his death where he puts to death sin and evil and death from an eternal perspective and just as he was raised, so are you. And nothing in all of creation can ever separate you from that. We've been around as a church for 25 years. 
just looked it up this past week. In the last 25 years, over 750 people from our church family have passed away. And a lot of you know that. Because you have loved ones that recently you've lost. So we decided that today, this weekend, would be a great time to be reminded of the resurrection of Jesus. That their death wasn't the end for them. That their death, as sad as it was, you know how sad it was, was claimed by Jesus Christ. And so that's how we're going to continue. There's a song that was written by a woman by the name of Andre, Andre Day. It's called Rise Up. It's written about three years ago, and she wrote it originally out of deep pain and deep sorrow. She did it in a difficult point in her career, and she found out that one of her best friends had cancer. So she started to write, and her writings became a prayer. It became a cry out to God that I will rise, that this will not be the end. So we want to continue and celebrate that. But we thought, who could we find that could ever sing that song? Do it justice the way that Andre Day did it. And we thought, well, what? What if John Merrill came back for Easter at Hope? And he said yes. So will you welcome John Merrill? Rise up, Hope. And while he sings, we're going to scroll every name of every person who has passed. Let this be a remembrance but a call of victory. He is risen. He is risen. Hallelujah. You're broken down and tired of living life on a merry-go-round and you can't find the fighter but I see it in you, so we gonna walk it out. And ooh, ooh, yeah, mountains, we gonna walk it out. And ooh, mountains, and I'll rise up, I'll rise like the day, I'll rise up. I'll rise unafraid, I'll rise up And I'll do it a thousand times again Oh, I'll rise up High like the wave, I'll rise up In spite of the ache, I'll rise up And I'll do it a thousand times again Oh, for you When the silence isn't quiet And it feels like it's getting hard to breathe And I know you feel like dying But I promise we'll take this world to its feet And ooh, mountains will take it to its feet and, ooh, 
And I'll rise up, I'll rise like the day, I'll rise up, I'll rise unafraid, I'll rise up, and I'll do it a thousand times again. For that we have each other Don't miss it. It's for you. It's what Easter is all about. It's God's love. It's, it's for you. It's nothing greater and nothing more important that you could ever put your faith in, put your trust in. <laughs> 